Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Woolfork, and I am delighted and honored to welcome Shums Eldine Rogers to the program. I have invited Shums to talk with us today about her approach to sustainable sewing and making. Now, you might recall in an earlier episode, I talked about why it was important to have a scrap bin. I did an entire episode about why you should have a box with your scraps in it and don't throw ham sandwiches in there and don't throw like, you know, the old used bag of Doritos. You don't want any food waste in your fabric because you want to keep it clean and easy to repurpose. And Shums has taken that to an entirely different level. She has managed to create and furnish um, her van with wonderful furnishings, wonderful decorations, wonderful, wonderful elements from stuff she has found and repurposed and reused. She is not heading out to the fabric store to buy yardage of fabrics. She is discovering and repurposing. And so Shams, I am so happy to have you. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today. You're so welcome. It's great to be here with you. I've enjoyed participating in one of your online workshops before. And I'm also excited to be able to talk to an audience to talk about the effect of textile production and waste on the world and in particular on the global south. Yes. You know, when you think about the fact that one pair of jeans takes 1,800 to 2,000 gallons to produce of water. Okay, wait a minute. That's a few years of water for an individual. And it takes that much, whether these are high quality jeans that are going to last or whether they're inexpensive jeans that are maybe not even going to make it for five wearings. If we understand that the people whose water is in crisis right here in the U.S. in Flint, Michigan, or the people whose water is in crisis in Sudan or the people in Bangladesh inundated by excess water because the water is melting because of human activity, we have to start thinking about our role in the production and waste of textiles. And so as a sewist, I've been a knitter and a sewist uh, since I was eight years old. And I've been involved in designing clothes, been involved in now teaching people how to upcycle from clothes that you already have or clothes that you found. So I don't wanna make it look like I've never been to a fabric shop. In fact, I have plenty of fabric at home. But the way I started on this whole life of let's try to use less stuff was when I was studying in Egypt. I was 19 years old. I had gone to the American University in Cairo. And before I left, everybody said, okay, when you get there, they're not going to have the shoes in your size. No, that part was true. They said, when you get there, they're not going to have clothes that fit you, or they're not going to have uh, sanitary napkins. They're not going to have notebook paper. So I brought 10 suitcases. Wow, I was going to be there studying for a year. And so I had these 10 suitcases and, you know, you know, like Hillary on the Fresh Prince and she's like, yeah, hi. 
you know, I was, I was going to university. I was living that kind of lifestyle of not really caring about stuff. Mm-hmm. And the Egyptian ladies, the neighbors came to visit me at home. They have a tradition where they can come in the house of a new bride and inspect her stuff. Now, I wasn't a bride. But you but were new. <laughs> I was new. So they went and they came inside and they go all through your closets. They look at all your stuff. And they said, wait a second, you know, you got red shoes, you got blue shoes, you got black, you got brown, you got cream. What is this? I said, obviously, I need the red shoes to go in my red purse. You know, when I have an occasion to use the Navy shoes, I need the Navy purse, you know. And they said, and and this is the thing that's really stuck with me. One lady said, but you only have one pair of feet. Now, this wasn't a village. This was Cairo, you know, Cairo with a subway. Today, you know, Cairo's had the internet. They have better internet connectivity than most countries, and they've had it for 15 years. This wasn't a backwoods place. But they're just, but but why? And then I started just reading books about using less stuff by Vicki Robin, for example, or Amy Dex Sisson, and going on to try to go to thrift stores, try to go to yard sales. Mm-hmm. Again, I do not mean at all that I've never bought anything in the new, but I mean that overwhelmingly trying to say, why do I need so many of mm-hmm. these things? So in my knitting, I learned early that acrylic yarn is plastic. Yeah. We need to say this clearly. Acrylic yeah. is spun plastic. If you do a burn test on it, it beads up, it smells like plastic, it's plastic if you touch it. Else, yeah. I learned that wool, in fact, negates flames. And with this very sweater, I've stood in front of a classroom full of students and put a match to my hand and, wow. and my sweater won't take. Wow, nice. Because it's wool. And when you think we're going out into nature and you're saying, oh, I need a performance parka. Oh, yeah. I need to keep warm. But if you get uh, too close to the flames on your camping trip, you're going to be sorry. Very but if you've got that wool, the wool keeps you warm, even if it's wet. Mm-hmm. It, bi- it biodegrades at the end of your need for it. As well, you can continue to repair it. Yes. I started to learn more about not only is the acrylic plastic, it has the same other categories, you know, qualities of plastic. It won't disintegrate. So you want it, people want it because their sweater or their jacket is going to hold together. But when you put your polyester blouse or 50-50 cotton poly sheets into the garbage, that doesn't rot. Wow. I started moving much more toward natural fibers. Then, you know, as we, we go farther, so in life, I started to say, wait, also, natural fibers are less sweaty. Mm. You know, they can breathe the same way if they were wool, if they were cotton, if yeah. they were breathing in, le- in nature, they're letting you breathe and you don't have that stinky odor as bad. You're going to stink, okay, but not the same. Right. And I started to learn also that today, the average North American buys 68 garments per year. Wow. So that's average. We know that people, that some people are not, but some people are buying several things every week. And there are apparently companies, I didn't even know about this, apparently companies where you can buy things for $4 for a blouse and $10 for a dress. And then that stuff is plastic. 
and it don't fit right and it doesn't last long anyway and it gets in the landfills. So I have been concerned about waste, been concerned about energy use, yes. but I did something that isn't a very concerned about waste move, which is to buy a camper van. Ah. You can say that in some ways it reduces energy use. It's always less useful of fuel. You use less fuel if you're in a van than if you're on a plane. But still, driving it around, parking it downtown, taking it to the hardware store, what have you, you're using a lot of gas. I said, okay, what can I do to kind of mitigate that? Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, every textile that I put into the van is going to be trash. Only trash can come in. So I started getting sheets that somebody was donating. Uh, first, good condition sheets. And then I said, wait, why don't I just ask the neighbors, can I have your sheets that are too ragged to donate? Then I'm making repairs on these things and putting them in the van. Can I have your jeans that are too ragged to donate? I need to say a bit about donation. When you think you're donating it and somebody's going to use it, what happens is if there's any damage to it at all, or if it's dirty, it doesn't go out for resale in North America. It gets bailed into these huge bales sent to the global south in particular one place we know about is Cantamanto in Ghana mm-hmm. then those people want to try to resell it if they can yes. but if they can't it's now in their landfills or worse in their oceans on their land being burned causing air pollution so we know that if people have genes that are not useful for charity we know it's going to become trash okay so i said to the neighbors can you give me genes that are not suitable for donation. And people did. They gave me jeans with rips. They gave me holes and things like that. So I started cutting those up and making the bags that you need for things in the van. Instead of storing things in little plastic bags, I'm storing them in denim bags that I made myself. Also, a couple times, and I have one here, a couple times, people are giving me something that, I think you could see the big rip on the leg. Yes. Giving me the big rip on the leg. Yes, and I learned sometimes they're giving me something that's the right size for my husband. <laughs> so <laughs> I have started fixing those things up as well. So the van, the sheets, the comforters, the towels, the pot holders, the drying mat that you put your clothes on when they're, they're drying, things yeah. like that. And, and so then I wanted to go a little further. The van doesn't have as much insulation as you might want. Sure, it has insulation, but everybody's discussing they they put more. So I went to a wool processing plant and got some wool that was considered trash. It was too short to be spun into effective yarn. Yarn. So it was trash. They had it in a huge pile. They're going to sell it to a carpet manufacturer. And I said, but wait, how, how much could I pay for that wool? And then I brought the wool home and I washed the wool sitting outside in the summer. And, you know, this, this ritual of putting your hands into the, the clean wool or not yet clean, but you turning it into clean, of course, biodegradable soap. Don't misunderstand. Of course. And now I have started to insulate in the van with trash as well on this commitment to don't bring anything in there unless it's trash. So I volunteer with Creative Reuse Toronto. And when the director heard about this, she said, when it's safe to have people coming and going together and gathering, 
could you please bring your van? So they're already arranged. They're gonna park the van right outside the Creative Reuse Toronto and bring people inside so they can see these things. So it's pot holders made out of jeans or Kleenex box holder, you know, to keep your Kleenex box from rat rattling around. I'm using Velcro on the back of it. The mm -hmm. Velcro wasn't trash. All these kinds of things. So I started now to go even further. So now that I'm, I'm here in my Vermont house, I'm not usually in the Vermont house, usually Toronto. I didn't have as many sheets. I didn't have as many towels as I wanted. So I told in the neighborhood Facebook group, can I have stuff that's ragged, you know, that can't be donated? And people are like, sure, great. And so I got all these things. I got, um, and some things weren't all natural. If they're all cotton or all wool, I'm repairing them and putting them on the shelf. Right. But somebody gave me a fleece blanket and it had been bitten by a dog or cat or something. Wow. I take everything, I put it on the sanitized wash and dry. So I felt it was clean. Well, what am I going to do with this? I don't deal in fleece and polyester. But so coincidence, one of the Canadian groups that I volunteer with said, we need some fleece neck warmers uh. for the homeless people in the winter and I said well I got a fleece blanket in here so now I've got a I've made a neck warm neck warmer oh look at that it's so nice it's so pretty and colorful there is yeah that was what cute. the people gave it they gave it to me like that so we got a neck warmer now oh made, that is so uh, cute that is not what I was expecting when you said that you made that out of a blanket a dog had chewed I was like oh my gosh the unhoused people shouldn't have dog chewed blankets and then I'm like oh that's so pretty right they won't have I cut out the dog tooth section they won't have the dog tooth section but the rest of it was in fine condition so yes. we know that that blanket couldn't be used the way it was right and it had to it had a spot big enough for one of these that you couldn't use and and it would be inappropriate to give that to a person housed unhoused whatever it's inappropriate to give them an already damaged garment right but if you cut around the bad part, you can make a good part. So I've started and I got approval. This one looks like they're supposed to. So now I'll make the rest. It's really quick and fast to do. And we're learning more and more during our mask project. And off camera, you and I talked about that. I was involved with the mask project in Toronto and with Creative Reuse Toronto and with volunteers. I led a team and my team made more than 12 hundred masks for people in unhoused or wow. recent immigrants and so on situations marginalized peoples yes and some people would donate sheets to us we didn't ask for sheets we asked for fabric some people would put sheets in there and we said you know we're going to respect them by giving them new fabric that they have to put next to their nose and face and you know sheets always it takes a long time i strip them with oxyclean i Put them again through the sanitize. It As still takes a, it takes a long time for the sheets to smell like nothing. They yeah. always smell a little bit like somebody's shampoo or somebody, you know. Yes. And to just say to the people, we are not giving you the dregs. We're giving yeah. you something out of new fabric. We're giving you something stitched to the best of our ability. You know, we had volunteers. We had quality control on those volunteers okay. as to how it was supposed to be. So I do think that's very important, but if we have something that's a, that would be otherwise a waste and there's nothing wrong with it and it's needed. Look, I didn't even know how to sew with polyester fleece. I had to get advice because I don't deal in it. 
Right. But do we want it in the landfill for 400 years? It's wow. still going to the landfill after the person uses it. Yes. But maybe it can get some more use along the way. I really love what you are describing here. And it's a way to have sustainability to be a daily choice. And we know, we know that we make choices every day that also can trigger other processes and other, you know, each choice mm -hmm. reflects a constellation of other decisions. Mm -hmm. And so what I see what you're doing is rather than having this family, your neighbor pitch this blanket that the dog had chewed up, they give it to you. You pitch the part that the dog chewed up, which is a very small part, but then you're able to kind of create you know, who knows mm -hmm. now, 10, 15 neck warmers that will help mm -hmm. someone. And that is force that's stalling and, and keeping at bay the mm -hmm. accumulation that will, mm -hmm. that will last for a really long time, right? And that's so like true. you are helping to slow down that process of from commodity to trash, you know? Right. And I think that that's really, it's, it's very impressive. And the way that we can think about sewing as a process of renewal, um, mm -hmm. as a process of regeneration, that, you know, the ragged jeans that someone thought that, oh, you know, this has a rip in the knee, I'm not going to do anything with this. They fit your spouse and you're like, I can fix the rip in a jean. I can actually make a rip look good. You know, mm -hmm. I, can, I can do some sashiko stitching by hand or exactly. whatever. I can do, you know, some there. A lot of folks are doing, I think the make do and mend movement is kind of coming. Um, not, I wouldn't say coming back. I mean, for some people, they never left. But this idea that you can, one of the things about sewing is that you can fix things. You can hem pan. Right. You, can, mm -hmm. you can repair a tear. You can modify mm -hmm. something. And you are doing all of that. And so tell me what, so you were talking about the van and how the van needs insulation, you know? And so like, that's something I would not have imagined. I'm not sure what's all required for a camper van. So like, did you have to make bench seating? Did you make- No, no, did you it was, it's a purchase four season van okay. made by Winnebago. Oh, cool. And, and people do use them all winter without okay. putting in any extra insulation. You just okay. run the heat all the time. But the more insulation you have, the less propane you need. Yes. So people are putting insulation around the water lines if they want, because again, in this particular van, as long as you keep the heat on, you can run the water all winter. You can take a shower, a hot shower. But I am thinking, but if I put more wool around it so that the pipes stay warmer, they have less likelihood of freezing. And furthermore, I don't need as much propane to keep the temperature as appropriate. Yes. So it's not that I had to do that. It's that I'm choosing to do that to minimize the propane use. And even that is a, su a sustainability choice, right? Yes, less fuel consumption, less off-gassing, less all, less all of it. So like when you, when, if someone were to give you because what I see in your vision is that you're able to see what these things can be, despite mm -hmm. what they probably look like, right? Like I would see a ripped up blanket and think that blanket is broken. You know, it's a ripped up blanket. Mm -hmm. You see it and say, oh, this could be neck warmers. This could be uh, pot holders. This could be all these other things. Not and pot holders. Not, not pot, pot holders. Right. That's true. You can't use a okay. pot holder for polyester. That's a terrible idea. Okay. That's a terrible um, idea. One thing I, I think is that I look at them as raw material. Hmm. So 
I'm looking at these things. And when you mentioned make, do, and mend, and I'm certainly very active in the mending spheres on, on Instagram and so forth. And I've taught mending to people in Vermont and in Toronto. When you think of mending, back in the day, we're talking about grandma. My grandma made quilts out of old clothes that they had. And she herself picked the cotton in Louisiana that she stuffed the quilt with. And I have a fragment of one of her quilts and some of my other cousins have pieces of that too. Wonderful. They were saying, look, we have an old blouse. It's worn. You know, they're wearing things for real, real. They're wearing things down. Yes. We, we have this old blouse. We can use this for something else. This is our blanket or part of our blanket now. That's our heritage, not just as Black people, but also our heritage as humans. Fabric was horrendously expensive until the Industrial Revolution. Yes. If you had to pay someone to spin that thread, you had to pay someone to weave it. That person is sitting there. Now, I've woven. I've gone to weaving class with traditional looms. You are up there all day long. And at the end of it, you got a couple of yards if you're lucky. And these weavers are also skilled. They're not, yes. it's not something you could just start doing. Right. So you think of the wages involved in having uh, enough wool for a suit, oh. all the people, all that. You think about, and you see that even in Shakespeare's will, he's willing some of his clothes to people. We see that fabric was tremendously expensive. And these days, fabric is cheap. It's made on industrial machines. It's been getting cheaper and cheaper yes. since the 1970s with globalization and the idea that we can have someone in a country, usually a brown someone in a country, we can have someone be paid 20 cents to make your jeans. We can have someone being paid four to six cents to make a blouse, one penny for the underwear that that can allow the consumer in the richer countries to say, oh, stuff is cheap. And it is in comparison to your hourly wage. It's no longer that you have to get one new outfit. I don't know um, if you remember growing up and you would get the Easter clothes. Yes. And also you would get the first of the school year clothes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and my family, anyway, we didn't get too many more clothes than that, except hand-me-downs from another family. And they had five girls that were older than me and my sister. So we had to wear all five of their clothes, too. That's not because we were unusually poor. No. That was the thought process was, why do they need new clothes? Clothes exist. Exactly. We, we still do that. Like, uh, my sisters and I, we all, for some reason, all had boys. And mm -hmm. so my, oh, my, young, my sister has the oldest boy. And so he has a great taste in clothes. And so every season we would look forward to Devin's, Devin's hand-me-downs and they would mm -hmm. come and then Riley, my son would have them. And then the next boy in the size range, my others would mm -hmm. have them, you know, and, and my mm -hmm. mother did the same thing with us. It was three girls who were born, we're three years apart. And so she was actually saying the other day, she was like, oh, I would make three, I'd get three dresses. They all be the same. And then your, my youngest sister would wear that dress for 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And so my mother said, I am sick of looking at this dress. I think I have had this dress in this house for 10 years, the same one. I know and those five girls, they had identical bedspreads and we only were two of us. So we had to use those bedspreads until they were going to be worn out. We use those bedspreads until I went to college. <laughs> when I came back from college, I said, okay, no more. 
but my mother had to give those things away. They had been 15 years with us, I think, and there were still several of them that were fine. Yeah. So we've changed out of that. We've changed to a society of, you know, when my aunt passed away, we had literal rooms of closets, mm. literal a room closet on all three sides, clothes hanging, some with tags on them. Wow. And that's not just her. That's not just one person. We can. She grew up in those times when you couldn't. And I want to say a little bit about the role of home sewing in, at least in Detroit, in the Black community in the 40s, 50s, 60s, people's moms were making them clothes. Mm -hmm. It was still cheaper to make your clothes. Um, The globalization hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were working in a service. And when I say in service, I mean, they were in houses, cleaning houses for people. Yeah. And they were also working at the low level in the factory, perhaps, or things like that. They didn't have extra money. And so they, like kids do, would try to zero in on someone's clothes and say, those are mammy made. My father talked to him, talked to me about the fact that people would call their clothes mammy made. Wow. And if somebody had a patch, they would call it patches. So my mother made her clothes coming up, but she stopped when she, quote, didn't have to. I want to connect that to the visible mending trend that's going on in in a lot of circles today. People are in public libraries and certainly lots of craft stores. They're teaching visible mending. Yes. But I remind when I have the chance that in our community, and by this, I mean the black community in Detroit, and I'm betting Baltimore, I'm betting St. Louis, I'm betting Chicago, I'm from Detroit and that's what I know. We can't ask people to go around with patches of a different color on their sweater on their clothes first I think that mentality of it's less than is still there mm-hmm. also we have enough trouble in the larger world without going into a place of business with a you know a green patch on our purple outfit to try to get what we want done yes. so I love the the beauty of it but I do rather invisible mending for public things. And that's what I teach people. It may not be 100% invisible, but really very subdued. Yes. Hey, friends. Hey, what are you doing on Thursday around 3 p.m. or so? You got 30 minutes to hang out with Black Women Stitch? You got 60? If so, come through for 30-minute Thursdays. Thursdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can chill with Black Women Stitch on Instagram Live or talk with us through the two-way audio on Clubhouse at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's Thursdays for 30 minutes. Come hang out, chill, and have fun with us. See you Thursday. It's really interesting, too, to think about how the wheel of time turns. That when, you know, the idea of having homemade clothes, like my mother made our clothes as well, and she was, and my my grandmother as well, they were so good at it that the teachers did not believe that my mother had made these things. They would, Mm -hmm. I remember teachers taking my clothes and turning the seams upside down so they could Mm -hmm. see how it was finished because they did not Mm. believe me, right? And that was Mm. during the time when I was a girl in the early 1980s, it was like, 
there were no sergers at home, right? So mm -hmm. the stuff was done with the pinking shears or it was done, mm -hmm. it was finished with seam tape and hem binding and all of that. Mm -hmm. And now you might have like, you might call somebody patches because they had a patch on their jeans and it just was really ragged or whatever mm -hmm. and it was picked at. And it was also not seen as respectable. And so what mm -hmm. you're describing about the ways that, you know, that Black folks needed to self-fashion themselves and present mm -hmm. themselves, no one, there was a time when no one wanted to present themselves with, with, with holes or patches or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But now what we see is that in some ways, the things that we would do for sustenance in mm -hmm. order to make ends meet or in order to extend the life of a garment has now become a trend where people are now like writing books about this and doing how to's on how this and having, like you said, workshops at libraries and community centers to mend things and have the mending be the art. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. have, yes, sure, don't, it doesn't have to match. It can just exist. It's a mm -hmm. very big cultural shift that mm -hmm. I also kind of, it just, it's just, it just gives me pause. I'm not saying that people should not visit, not mend. I think mending is mm -hmm. wonderful. Visible mending and invisible mending, all of it's great. And we're also having it where folks seem to be pretty excited about wearing ripped jeans. I remember ripped jeans being a thing when I was a teenager and now they seem to be back and so much so that even you can see the inside of the pockets, like they'll be poking out through the rips. Like the, the, the thing is more ripped than jean. So, I, which I think is great. Yeah, let's relax that aesthetic. But I think it is also worth, I think, acknowledging that there is an alternative, no, there's not an alternative. There's also a history that mm -hmm. completely contradicts the wonderful social reclamation that seems to be mm -hmm. right now. I mean, you know, also when you tell the story that, so I, I'm a teacher, I've, I've been a teacher for some decades and the teacher touched you and looked inside your seam. And our society has changed, or at least I hope so. I don't think it's appropriate for us to do the kids like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's appropriate for us to be doubting them and involving ourselves with their clothes and their mom. They said my mama made it. Okay. Yeah. Sounds great. You know, as our culture shifts and we move more toward accepting others, part of accepting has to be that we have to accept the children's bodily autonomy. Yes. And we have to allow the child to decide who can touch them and it's who can't so touch them. It's so true. So, I mean, I mean, we've gone a long way from the idea of sewing sustainability, but if we want to have a society that works where people are healthy and safe, part of it has to be that our bodies as humans, we're part of the environment and our spirits yeah. Yeah. are part of the environment. So when we keep putting our hands on people who didn't ask for it and telling them you don't have a voice and telling them I get to do what I want because I'm grown up because the state gave me authority. We hear about the missing people. In Detroit, there are thousands yeah. of missing people, largely women and girls. Were they taught that nobody better touch them? Were they taught to right. defend themselves? Uh, you know, I, so when we ask those questions, I know that wasn't what we were supposed to be talking about, but humans are part of our environment. Humans. We are part of the biosphere. And so our brothers and sisters and non-binary siblings, and particularly right. sisters in the countries that are making these clothes, they're under tremendous pressure yes. to make the clothes faster and faster. Yes. To, they often are experiencing inadequate shelter. Yep. 
inappropriate food. And that's not just overseas. Come to find out that you can work in the United States for producers or, or for retailers and don't make enough to avoid food stamps. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So the, so the consumer as a taxpayer is paying for this person to get food, which they need, yes. as opposed to the consumer as a consumer paying a price high enough. Yes, that this person can sustain and support their own livelihood with a living wage. Right. And, and, and we look toward especially Asia Barber. I think you already interviewed her. Yes. Oh, I haven't interviewed her, but I know who she is. She's awesome. Okay. And she has written a book called Consumed, and she's been a voice for quite a while. She really talking has. About she's amazing. I would love to talk with her. It's hard to get a hand. It's hard to reach out. She's so she's really blown up so much and so well. She's reminding us that none of this is existing in a vacuum. No. So I recently made the decision: no more factory clothes at all. Okay. So clothes that I trash pick, like I trash pick this LL Bean, this LL Bean turtleneck, 5% cashmere, 95% cotton. The only thing wrong was outside the thrift store in the free. The only thing wrong was it was dirty, but I told you I have a washing machine. You have a, a sanitizing setting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I trash picked that. But other than, than trash picking, I either have to make it myself or pay someone whom I can see to make it. Mm. They have the campaign, who made your clothes? Oh, yes, yes. I know who made these clothes. Yes. Because I made them or I picked them out of the trash. So that's includes, I already have been making panties for decades now. So I know how to make panties. I've been making bras for about 15 years, um, socks. So, but that includes everything me, no buying of any clothes whatsoever. So that's been like, my plan has developed in that way. I ordered something from a Nigerian Canadian seamstress. So I got some clothes from her, but I'm not buying nothing. My husband asked me, you know, when I got these free jeans with the rips and he was wanting some new jeans. I said, but baby, the new jeans are made in China. They're literally keeping those people as slaves, those Uzbek people. Even the U.S. government's acknowledging. You know things that bad if the U.S. government is saying they're keeping the people as slaves. That's true. They're forcing them because of their religion to be in concentration camps and to pick cotton and to work in textiles. He said, well, can I just have one pair? I said, how many pairs of slavery jeans are, do you expect me to allow you to have? You wow. can't have any slavery jeans. Wow. Now, if you can find some jeans that are not slavery jeans, I will allow you to buy some jeans because it's you. It's not me. Okay. But otherwise, I'll make you some jeans. I bought a pattern. I, got some, I already had some cotton, you know, trying to figure out how to do it until this, this new batch dropped into my lap that fit. <laughs> um, how many pairs of tears jeans, of captivity jeans, do you think you deserve? I say zero. Right. It's absolutely true. And you know what this reminds me of? And there's this wonderful poem by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who is was an abolitionist in the 19th century, a Black woman writer. And she actually has a poem. And actually, I mentioned this to Asia, like in a post of, or something. And it talks about the abolition of slavery in the U.S. and how it was so difficult. 
and so difficult for so long because people could not imagine and by people i mean the white folks who were in power and had all this access to labor resources or whatever to do without it right mm -hmm. and so they actually talk specifically in the poem about the poor slave who is picking the cotton just so some lady can have a delicate handkerchief right mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. how can you say that you believe in abolition and also buy products that are based in the labor in stolen labor Right. And like, and so she, and, and this is the thing that I really appreciate about looking at her work and a lot of other 19th century writings is that it, it gives the lie to the idea that nobody knew any better. Right. That's one of the biggest lies they want to say about slavery. Nobody knew that slavery was bad. Lies. People who were enslaved knew that slavery was bad, except nobody listened. Mm -hmm. to there were a lot of people who were not enslaved and also knew it was bad. There were people who were enslaving mm -hmm. people and they knew it was bad. So, I mean, of course. We don't have this excuse to say, oh, no, no, we didn't know, especially with the way that globalization has worked to pretty much the exclusive benefit of those in the global north and in the mm -hmm. West in particular. Mm -hmm. This has become such a massive issue, an ethical issue, a moral issue, a justice issue. You know, like I think it's Fannie Lou Hamer that says, you know, nobody's free until we're all free. And right. one way to, and one of the things that we also have to accept in addition to letting other people have their own bodily autonomy, I think it's also the hard work of, of accountability, right? Mm -hmm. and like for me, I like to think that, well, I think I'm doing a good job with sustainability because I don't buy clothes. Like I make all my own clothes, um, bras, mm -hmm. underwear, everything. I, I don't know how to knit, so I don't have, I, I do buy socks or their gifts or whatever. But most mm -hmm. everything else, bras, panties, shirts, dresses, mm -hmm. umbrellas, shower caps, everything. Mm -hmm. Right. I make all of that. And it was actually funny. It was my son. You know, it, it, it takes sometimes a smart ass kid to help you realize your limitations because he I know he would we were arguing about something or having a spirited discussion about something. And I was like, I don't want to buy that because it is made with exploited labor. I don't know. I, I know what it was. It was he was in his into fast fashion. And I was trying to explain to him, I find fast fashion amoral. I think that it, 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 it like you said, the t-shirts, the like to make a t-shirt is like 11,000 gallons of water for a t-shirt. And I don't think t-shirts as bad as that. T-shirt, it was a surprise. It was a lot. I was amazed. 1,100. How about 1,100? Maybe 1,100, 1,100. Okay. It was two ones and some zeros. I did not okay. realize that so much water went into a doggone t-shirt. I. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of water. And so I was explaining like, you know, and then like the way that you have this shirt here for $7 or this suit for this whole three piece suit for $90, that's, you can't get that without exploitation. And so he says to me just like that, he's like, mom, don't you think that there's some child somewhere making your fabric that you're buying at the store? What's the difference between you buying this fabric and me wanting this t-shirt from this website and then i was like go to your room you're under restriction for the next three weeks Until well, uh, i have a couple points for your son um most fabric is mechanized today they are not sitting at individual hand looms they're actually loading the fiber into these big big vats and it's being pulled down and spun and then sent 
to in huge rolls of thread to the power looms. So I would say to your son, children are being harmed, but not that way. I see. Children are being harmed by the dyes that are polluting their environment. Children are being harmed by their parents working until all hours right. and not being able to provide adequate nutrition or schooling. It, children are being harmed by their environment. But yes. we can choose to step back. So I, I've been buying organic cotton when I don't find anything for free. And now I've contacted a local Vermont weaver oh. who has sheep in Vermont. Wow. Will shear the sheep and spin the wool and dye it with black walnuts in Vermont and weave the wool in Vermont. I've just started talking to him about some material for a suit for my husband. I've also ordered some Vermont wool hats for an organization I'm part of, of Vermonters of color. So we are getting our own wool and spun locally. That's amazing. yeah, you don't, you can choose to, to opt out. First, with all the fabric that you have and all the fabric that I have and all the fabric that's in everybody's houses, like when somebody passes away, there's all this fabric coming. We're not even calling the fabric that's already closed. I'm just saying the fabric that's still folded or on rolls and so forth. We don't need to go there, but it, your son is right in the idea that the fabric has an effect. Yes, yes. And those standards need to change. But the children themselves are not sitting over those sewing machines. They're not staying in these dormitories where the people are abusing them and where they can't get out if there's a fire. That's not what's happening with the fabric. So, you know, your son, not he's not all the way wrong, but he also doesn't get to say to you, you're wrong too, so I'm going to stay wrong. Right, right, exactly. You know? Exactly. He was also, I think, 11 years old. So, you know, you're not wrong, wrong. No, 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 no. I'm willing to concede. I I, I don't have to be right all the time. Um, I I would like to talk about uh, activist Sean King. uh Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of people know that he's been really fighting for justice, um, especially against police and other state violence. But a lot of people may not know yet that he has started a vertically integrated black t-shirt company. Interesting. What does that mean, vertically integrated? It means that at every step in the production, everybody involved is black. Also, everybody's being paid a fair wage and and it's all organic. So vertical integration is when a company owns all the pieces that go to it, or in this case, a black people own all the pieces. So he hired black designers. He sourced cotton in Tanzania owned by black people, not just picked by black people. He found black factories to do the spinning and cutting and and dyeing and sewing. And then back in the US to do the uh, silk screening and the distribution. He also found black shipping company to bring those things that they don't own the ship. There are at this time, no black companies owning the international ships, but handling the shipping as much as he could control. So the company's called a real one. And the t-shirts cost a lot more than $4. You say, of course, but people have been tearing him to pieces. They've been saying, why are your shirts so expensive? 
he's been trying to fight back by saying, look at Gucci t-shirts for $2,500 and Balenciaga and so on that y'all are readily buying. I think that people don't understand what you told your son and he was 11, but there's no way when you think it takes me half an hour to make a pair of pajamas. Yes. We're not discussing the fabric. We're not discussing the rent on my house or the machines, the scissors, the yada, yada. We're saying it takes me half an hour to make a pajama bottoms. At my labor rate, that's $45 just for the labor. We didn't even discuss the other factors. How no. are you going to get pajama bottoms for $4? No, no. It's no, you're you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think that people who want to, I think that, I think that one of the reasons that people need to like be self-examining is to recognize that we have responsibility or culpability, culpability, however you want to describe it, that things that are, that have been conveniences for us mm -hmm. often rely on exploitation of other mm -hmm. people, right? Like yes. that is just a basic fact that if, when you are looking at a $3 t-shirt mm -hmm. that's brand new in a shop that is selling these things, and there's a whole bunch of them, those cannot come from someone who is being paid a living wage that allows them to support themselves and a family and all of this, because it's just not possible that capitalism right. won't allow it, right? And that it seems to require, it feels like the squeezing of other people. And one of the things I like to imagine those of us who are interested in sewing in do-it-yourself, that in the same way that we don't wanna subject ourselves to exploitation, we should not want to enforce that, you know, even accidentally onto other mm -hmm. people. Because it, essentially, if you buy something made by people who are enslaved, you are a slaveholder. You can smile about it and be like, well, actually, see, I, I didn't, I did, but you did. Yeah, that is so true. It's, and that's a hard truth to accept. It's absolutely a truth. When we, when we go through the textiles, now I know people are activists around a lot of different issues, but I choose to concentrate on textiles. And when we look at the fact that there are six times as many produced clothes on the earth today as there will be needed for this entire generation. Wow. I'm just talking about produced clothes because you know that not everything we own, we wear. No, I'm not over here to tell you to get rid of your stuff. I am saying when you get new stuff, think about where it came from. Who made your clothes? Why are these clothes here? And when you need to have stuff that you're thinking about letting go, a couple of the things I found in a dumpster, it's just because they're missing a button. The thrift shop does not have time to be paying somebody to be sewing on your buttons. Right. So that goes. What do we want to have as our legacy? Yeah. I want to say a little bit about costs too. Yes. We talked about the pre-industrial revolution and we talked about, I don't know, how much I'm going to have to pay this dude in Vermont to spin, to grow and spin and dye and weave the wool for the suit. But that's his life energy you're paying for. Yeah. clothes are supposed to be expensive mm. it should not be cheap 
you should say, this is precious to me. This sweater that I have, I made this sweater uh, 25 years ago. Beautiful. I love the colors. Thank you. This is a traditional Norwegian pattern, but I made it in my own colors because I, you know, I'm free to do that because I'm the maker. And I've had this sweater for 25 years. It's not my only sweater, but one year when the wintertime came, one of my colleagues at work in suburban Michigan teaching, she said, oh, I guess it's winter. You brought that sweater out. Oh, okay. I said, I said, you don't like it. Do you think it's inappropriate to wear in front of children? (laughs) She said, I'm not saying that. She just says, I'm tired of it. I said, well, good thing you're not in my class. I'm tired of looking at your sweater. What? No, yes, that's, you know, she's carrying a mindset. She's one of those teachers that was always in the teacher's lounge complaining about her finances. And her husband is an engineer also. She was being saying, you know, between her nice salary as a teacher, and she's like, oh, it's so difficult. Oh, we can barely make ends meet. And I'm like, maybe you should wear your sweater next year. You know, I didn't say that. I'm just thinking, hmm. Yeah, I mean, wow. And and this idea that somehow you owe her a new sweater every year. She can have her ideas. You know, she she's can, responsible for them. People should not say everything they think. Well, you know? we know that's true. We know that's true. And, so, and I have not even been making as many clothes as I used to because I don't need any clothes because I already have clothes. And so we see these delicious challenges and we're going to make this in December, we're going to make this in, in October, whatever. I'm having to say, wait a minute, though. I already have a fill in the blank. Yes. Yes. I don't need one. Yes. Yes. And you find joy in the repurposing. You don't, mm-hmm. you find joy in the saving of um, a piece, a garment, a textile and giving it new life, extending its, mm-hmm. extending its life, not converting something from like a, a store or whatever, but you like, you, you, it's like you're being like a, a sustainability superhero. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'd yeah. like to be, I think I'd like to be a sustainability hero. If I really could be a hero, I'd like the power to unearth everybody's trash that they themselves ever made. I'd oh. like to be able to come to your house, Lisa, and say this is your life in trash whoa your life in you know it's kind of like what was that the 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 dickens story with the the ghosts that come at christmas time or whatever and they uh a christmas carol yes they take the Mm -hmm. scrooge and they show him the ghosts of christmas past and i can only imagine can you imagine like as much trash as this we make in this country like i think it would be it would probably fill up this entire house just mine i mean like it's really yeah that's yeah it's very sobering. It's a very sobering. And, and I had a lady do this to me in Egypt. Again, Egypt was just so formative to me because I would put my trash out and she came and she opened, brought my trash back in. And she said, you're paying the garbage man too much because apparently you give him money, you give him a little tip, but your trash is part of his tip. And they have a whole area in Cairo called the Zabalin or the trash pickers area. And it's in a historic cemetery. And the families are there separating the trash into organic things they give to pigs. These are people of the Christian faith. They, they do eat right. pork. They're separating it into things that need to be burned, things that can be resold, bales of plastic, metal, whatever. So she came and she said, you're giving the man too much payment. You're going to ruin it for the rest of us. 
And she was taking this on this. You can reuse it. You better take that back and save it. And so I was like, wait a second, lady. You're all in my garbage. This is embarrassing, but it's sobering. Yes. So if I had a power, yes, I would love to have that power to just say, look at you. Look at what you've done. And that applies to me too. Yes. Look at what you've done. I want to ask you one last question before we okay. wrap up. And I've been asking this question to some folks um, on the podcast recently. The slogan of the Stitch Please podcast is that we will help you get your stitch together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to help someone get their stitch together, what advice would you give to make t- for that purpose? Oh, this is a good one. I recently have begun to become friends with another black woman in Montpelier, Vermont. There aren't that many, although the number is growing. And I taught her how to mend. I also found some of the clothes in the free bin to give to her and her husband. And she gave me some eggs from her chickens. And I would say my advice to anybody from where I'm standing is I would like to help them understand how to use a sewing machine, how to shop for one, preferably a vintage solid machine if they're just at the beginnings of sewing. I don't only, I use those, but I also use expensive computerized machines too. When you, once you know you like it. Yeah. I would like to teach them about fibers, teach them with their 50, 50 polyester. It's, it's, the cotton part just gets gone away and there are the sheets and things that just get thinner and thinner and then what? And that's gonna rot. If I could help people get their stitch together, I would teach them how to use those tools and the tools of their iron and their scissors to revolutionize their consumption and output of textiles. I love that you've asked that question and that you've invited me to be on your show. We never talked about the hand-picked zippers that we were going to talk about. I know, I know, I know. Well, that'll be for the next conversation. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'll get you just to hold on one second, but thank you. Yes, of course. Awesome. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out with, to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcasts directories or services allow for reviews but for those who do for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the stitch please podcast that is incredibly helpful thank you so much come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together